the presence of evil in the world has been pointed to throughout the ages as evidence that God cannot exist. It's not a new argument. It's an argument that has been passed down through the ages by atheists and agnostics and many others. The argument goes something like this. If God exists, he must be both good and all-powerful. A good God would never allow evil to exist, and an all-powerful God would be able to destroy it. But since evil exists, God must either not be good because he allows evil in the world, or he must not be powerful enough to destroy it. Therefore, they conclude, God is not both good and all-powerful, therefore God cannot be in existence. God cannot exist because evil exists. The psalmist, as I said, this is not something new. The psalmist, even in Scripture, wrestles with the reality that evil exists and God exists. In Psalm 73, the psalmist cries out, The wicked say in their hearts, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High God? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Elsewhere throughout the Psalms, the psalmists look around the world, um, around their world, and they see the wicked prospering and God doing nothing about it, and they wrestle with that reality in their heart. And that's true of each and every generation. And though persons of faith and students of the Scripture would come to a different conclusion than atheists who see evil and therefore conclude God doesn't exist, we all still struggle with the presence of evil in our world and in our lives. We look around and we see oppression, we see slavery, we see abuse and addiction and despair and disease and death, and we wonder, God, where are you? We hurt and we see others around us hurting and we ask, God, are you even paying attention? We wrestle with the reality of evil and the darkness that surrounds us. And on the surface, the book of Obadiah seems dark and depressing, but when we scratch the surface, we find an encouraging message for all of those who would turn toward and trust in the Lord. The message of Obadiah is simply this. No matter how dark or desperate things may get, God will always make things right. Since Obadiah is only 21 verses long, we're going to read the whole thing this morning. Only take us a couple of minutes. We can't do that with every book of the Bible, but congratulations. When you leave, you'll have read a whole book of the Bible. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations." You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grapes gather, grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. 
Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you that you sit above it all. That you see us in the midst of our suffering and our despair and the darkness that surrounds us. And Father God, you are not unconcerned. Your heart is not calloused to what we experience. But Father God, you are faithful to your people and to your promises to them. And you prove it again and again. So take our hearts this morning, Heavenly Father, and I pray that you would pierce them with the truth of your warning, but you would then also, Heavenly Father, strengthen them with the assurance of your promises. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that it would motivate us to live lives in relationship with you, in trust of you and your purposes, and your plans, regardless of what this world and this life may throw our way. Let us trust you more. And in trusting you more, Heavenly Father, let us love you more. And let us love others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The message of Obadiah summarizes as simply as this, no matter what it is, And how dark and desperate our times may be and our lives may get, God will make all things right. He will restore all things. Obadiah is an oracle of judgment, but it's not against God's people Israel. From the very beginning, it says this is the vision that God has given to Obadiah, verse 1, concerning Edom. If you're not necessarily a a seasoned Bible scholar. Maybe you may not recognize who Edom is, but Edom was a nation 
that neighbored Israel to the southeast. The majority of modern-day Jordan is now what was at one time Edom. And there are people in this room who have walked the capital city of Edom with me, the streets of Petra. And you have been in a place where you have seen the mountain fortresses of this nation that had built their home and their nation in the mountains to the southeast of Israel. And it became a place where because these mountain roads were treacherous and people couldn't get to them and they built these fortified cities hidden away inside of the mountains, Edom became a place that prospered. They grew in military strength and might, and because they were still relatively close to this area of the world that was a major trade route, they prospered primarily not through agriculture, but through levying taxes on the people who wanted to trade in their area. So they became wealthy, and they became powerful, and they built these strongholds, and they became mighty men who forced other people to pay taxes. They were also cousins of the Israelites. The people of Edom were the descendants of the man named Esau. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you know that Esau was the older twin brother of the man Jacob, who God would change his name to Israel. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And so Esau's descendants became known as the Edomites, and the descendants of Jacob became the Israelites. So they are cousins, they are close relatives, if you will, to the nation of Israel, not just their neighbors. And yet, we will see that a rivalry existed between these two nations for the, the extent of their existence. We see it escalated a little bit when the Israelites are rescued by God out of Egypt and they want to travel through the desert in order to go back to the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And they asked their cousins, can we come through your land in order to get back to Israel? We will even pay for the water that we drink and anything that we offset with you. And the Edomites hardened their hearts against the people of God and said no. And a rivalry began to exist, and it began to grow, and that bitterness especially grew as Israel became more powerful until eventually David and Solomon controlled Edom and set up a vassal king there as, after they had conquered them. And so when God disciplines the people of Israel because of their immorality, or their idolatry and their injustice, what we have heard in the other prophets that we have been studying, Edom did not merely sit back, we see in the book of Obadiah, and, and gloat over the defeat of their cousins on the other side of the Dead Sea. Instead, we find out that they actually escalated things in invading the land, capturing women and children. We see the psalmist declare their evils as they sold them into slavery, and they plundered, and they looted, and they fed off of the destruction of Israel. And so God has a message for these people, that God has seen not only what they have done, but he has seen into the depths of their heart. The broader picture that is painted for us in this is that God is alert and aware of all the wrong that has been done by the nations, Edom in this, past, in this book in particular, and the evils that have been committed against his people, and he is going to make all things right. And he will do so, first and foremost, by punishing the wicked. God will make things right by, first and foremost, punishing the wicked. You see, the problem of the Edomites is not actually all that different from the problem of the Israelites that the prophets have been exposing. 
The two greatest commandments, Jesus said, that summarizes all of the Old Testament are first and foremost, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all of the Old Testament hinges on those two principles. To violate the first command of loving God first and best is to commit idolatry. And we have seen Amos, we have seen Hosea especially, confront the nation of Israel for their idolatry, for pursuing other gods. But to violate the second command to love my neighbor as myself is to commit injustice. And last week particularly in Amos, we saw Amos bring the people of Israel to task for their injustice committed against the poor. They have violated both of those commands. But as we look at the heart of Edom as exposed to us by the prophet Obadiah, we see that they are not far off from the very evil that God has come to discipline in the people of Israel. They are proud. They are trusting in themselves. And they are full of animosity and hatred towards their brother. And Obadiah wants the people of Israel and Edom and us to understand that God is going to punish such evil. First and foremost, God will judge the proud in spirit who don't trust in the Lord. That violation of the first command, these people, the people of Edom, are proud. They are full of themselves. They have come to trust in their own strengths and their own abilities. They trust, in verse 3, we see they trust their mountain fortresses. These places that seem impenetrable, that armies cannot get to. They trust in what they have built for themselves. They trust their wealth and their possessions. In verses 5 and 6, God promises he's going to take that stuff away. They also trust in their ability to negotiate alliances because they considered themselves so strategic for the area that they had built and negotiated all of these alliances that God says are going to come crashing down around their heads in verse 7. They also trust, in verses 8 and 9, in their own wisdom, the wise men of the East. We see wise men from the East and from this region throughout Scripture. Two of the friends that came to Job in the book of Job to provide counsel were from this area of Edom, which was apparently known for its wisdom. And God said, all of that is going to come crashing down around your head. Their trust was in themselves and not in the Lord. They consider themselves to be untouchable. And the Lord condemns them for this pride. It's the pride in their heart, verse 3, that has deceived them. Pride's not merely the problem of the Edomites, though. Pride is the problem of humanity itself. Pride goes all the way back to the temptation that first came from the voice of Satan in the garden in chapter 3, verse 5 of the book of Genesis, when he comes to Eve and he says, in the day, God has warned them, the day that you eat of this tree, you will die. But this is what the serpent said. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The temptation from the beginning was, Reach out and grasp what belongs to God. Become your own God. Become the determiner of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil in your life. Pride is the problem of every hum voice uh, of humanity. It's the voice inside of me that says, I can do anything that I want and there will be no consequences. I will determine what is right and good for me. I will be my own God. It echoes again and again. To this, though, throughout Scripture, God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Isaiah chapter 46. God alone is God. And it's that wrestling with him, that refusal to surrender, but instead to trust in myself instead of trusting in God, that God condemns in the Edomites and God condemns in us. He says that he will bring down the prideful Edomites, verse 4, and that their destruction will be great, verse 5. But this isn't the only evil that God takes them to task for. God will judge the proud in spirit, and he will also judge the hateful of heart who gloat over the destruction of others. You see, wherever there is sin, there is guilt. Where there is guilt, there is shame. And shame does a couple of things in our hearts. But first and foremost, shame drives us away from people. Where there is sin, there is separation. Because I want to cover up my shame. And I will do that in one of two ways. I will either hide myself... And I will cover myself as Adam and Eve did when they attempted to knit coverings for themselves out of fig leaves, or I'll do something a little bit different. I won't hide, instead I will lash out. Because after all, it's been said that a good defense is a good offense. The best defense is a strong offense. And so oftentimes what we will do is that we will begin to cover our own shame by putting shame on other people. And we will lash out and we will attack one another. This is exactly what happened in the garden. When God came to Adam, what did Adam do? He pointed the finger at Eve. Regardless of the consequences that would come upon his wife and the wrath of God that would come against her, Adam decided my skin is more valuable and more important, so God let all of your wrath be on her. And he lashed out. You see, when I surrender to the voice that says you will be like God, and my temptation to be my own God, then anyone in my life who's not supporting my deity and control over my life becomes an obstacle at best, and an enemy to be eliminated at worst. More than that, when I am God of my own existence, then anyone that I see and deem as more favored, more successful, more powerful, anyone who has what I think I should have, who has what I deserve, they must be destroyed because they exist in competition with me. And I am the Lord of my own universe and the center of my own world. We see that in the heart of Cain. It's just one generation removed from the sin in the Garden of Eden. Cain saw the favor that he desired bestowed instead on his brother Abel, and his response was to what? Get rid of him. Because if he's not in the way, then God has no choice but to love me. The same was true of Jacob and Esau. A rivalry existed between these two brothers from before they were even born because the Lord declared while they were still in the womb that the older brother, the one that the culture would say is the most valuable child, that older brother, despite what culture has to say, is instead going to serve the younger brother. And the blessing that God had given to Abraham that said whoever blesses you will be blessed 
And whoever curses you will be cursed. That blessing has been passed from Abraham to Isaac, and now from Isaac, not to his firstborn son, but to his secondborn son. And instead of submitting to and surrendering to the will of the Lord, a rivalry existed between the brothers. And that rivalry was passed down from generation to generation. That the younger would serve, or the older would serve the younger. And we see that even when the Edomites refused to yield to God's will. And instead, they hated their brother. They hated Israel. They longed to be the favored ones. And it culminates in what we see here in Obadiah as they contribute to the destruction of their cousins. And so the Lord declares His judgment over them. Not only them, but every nation in verse 16. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. All of those who reject the will of the Lord. All of those who turn against God and His plan and His people as representatives of His purpose and His plan set themselves against God and will be left as though they never were. This oracle isn't merely about Obadiah and, or I mean about Edom. It is about all of the nations that stand opposed in their pride against God and His plans. And it's a condemnation against them all. But it prompts the question, verse 16, if it, shall be, if it shall be that these nations will be as though they had never been, then what is going to be left? And that's where the hope of the book of Obadiah steps in. Because in making all things right, God will not merely judge the wicked, He will also restore the righteous. The message of Obadiah is a warning to the enemies of God and, his, and to the enemies of his people, but it is a message of hope, a promise of restoration for those who are in relationship with him. The hinge verse of Obadiah is verse 15. It's the one that transitions from the condemnation of Obadiah to, expo, or to, to, to expanding the vision of Obadiah to all of the nations. But the hope of the book of Obadiah is found in verse 17. As God talks about all of this destruction that comes, the most beautiful and one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture begins verse 17. But. But God. This is the direction of the world. This is the direction of our hearts. Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And Mount Zion shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. You see, despite the destruction of Jerusalem and the discipline of the Lord upon His people, the promise of Obadiah is that is not the end. The watching world looks at it and sees their defeat and they gloat and they are proud and they are arrogant and they celebrate the destruction of God's people, but God's promise is that is not the end. God will restore His people. God will rescue His people. God will restore the righteous. And two things that we need to understand as God is talking about the restoration of His people is first and foremost, restoration is the result of discipline. You can only restore something that is damaged. If you're going to buy up a fixer-upper in a home 
and restore it, the implication is there's stuff that is there that is broken and damaged and unfunctional that has to be fixed. If you're going to take a piece of furniture and restore it, the assumption is there's water damage, there is structural damage, there is a problem with it that must be repaired. The same is true of us as God's people. God can only restore us after he has brought us down and low. And that is the purpose of the discipline and the destruction that comes upon Israel. But we are so often proud in our hearts, feeling that if we are really the people of God, we should somehow be spared pain, suffering, and problems in our lives. We acknowledge it with our brains and with our heads, and we say all day long, we understand Christianity is not easy. We understand Christianity isn't a promise that all things are going to be great and all things are going to be good from this point forward. But when suffering actually hits our hearts, we lash out and we throw tantrums like a two-year-old. And there's a place for that. I love the Psalms because the Psalms are a true expression of human emotion. And there are times when the psalmists point their finger at God and go, why are you letting this happen? There's even one psalm that says, I'm doing everything right, God, and yet I'm still suffering, so you must be in the wrong. When was the last time you had the audacity to pray like that? Most of us would wag our fingers and shake our heads at somebody who prayed like that, but it's in the Bible. To have a real, true, honest conversation with the Lord. We stand here preaching against the evils of the world, but we fail to hold up the mirror to our own hearts, creating elaborate theological systems that somehow explain away the suffering of the people of God and promise instead that we are going to always escape tribulation. But that has never been true of God's people. Never been true of God's people. God sheltered them and He protected them while they were enslaved in Egypt. But guess what? They experienced some of the plagues themselves. God later sheltered them from the worst of them, but it was only after the tribulation of Egypt that God pulled them out of their suffering. He brought them into the land, and there they suffered through the judges. And God, through their suffering, raised them up and changed them and disciplined them, but ultimately also through the destruction and the discipline of His people when He exiled them to bring them back stronger. Brothers and sisters, Resurrection only comes after death. Restoration only comes after destruction. Rescue only comes after enslavement. Healing only comes after suffering. If we want those things, restoration, resurrection, healing, then we will endure death and destruction, and discipline, and suffering. But the promise of Obadiah, the reason Obadiah spoke this oracle about Edom but to the people of Israel is because Obadiah wants them to understand God sees the hatred of your enemies against you. God sees you in the midst of your destruction. And God promises that on the other side, there is something greater. So we have reason to hope. 
in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our discipline, in the midst of tribulation. We can have hope. We need not be afraid of any of it because God promises throughout Scriptures that our discipline, our destruction, our suffering, our disease is not the end. There is hope because the story that saturates all of Scripture and is the heart of the Gospel is this. What looks like defeat to a wicked world is in fact the work of God to rescue and restore His people. As we zoom out and we look at the picture of Obadiah that says the people of God suffer to the point of destruction and the enemies of the people of God rejoice and even profit from their destruction, God says what looks like defeat of my people will actually result in a cleansing of the entire world and the establishment of my kingdom on the earth. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like exactly what happened to Jesus? Because what looked like death and defeat of Christ to the Romans and to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people of Jesus' day, what looked like the end of the troublemaker was only the beginning. Because God is not calloused to evil. There is no one in the universe who understands the depths of our disease, of sin, more than God himself, who willingly chose to be the victim of our evil, who chose to take the place of death and destruction and discipline that we might be spared. And that we might receive the hope that comes from the promise that in Jesus Christ, God is making all things right. Because in Christ, God is making all things new for all of those who are righteous. God promises to restore the righteous. And what we have to understand is that the righteousness of the people of Israel and the righteousness of you and me is not at all based upon our performance. Israel deserves to be destroyed. Israel deserves the destruction that comes upon them as Jerusalem is torn down by the Babylonians and they are taken off and they are enslaved. If they got what they deserve because of their performance, it's destruction and damnation. If you and I get what we deserve because of evil, if God is truly going to do something as an all-powerful, all-good God to fix what is evil, the only answer is to wipe evil off the face of the earth. Guess what? That means you and me. If God is going to take evil seriously, He must destroy us. Or, He must make a way for what we deserve be put upon someone else, which is exactly what he did. You see, righteousness of the people of Israel and righteousness of you and me is not based on our performance. It's merely based upon our position because of God's promise. Why was Israel 
favored by God? Because God favored Israel. God chose Jacob before he was born, before he had a chance to do anything right or wrong, before Esau had the ability to to cast away and sell his, his birthright. God placed his favor on Abraham, not because Abraham was great and awesome and powerful. We see Abraham continually struggle with his own sin as he continually puts his wife in harm's way just to save his own skin. We see the people of Israel constantly giving way to their idolatry and their immorality and their injustice against one another. And again and again and again, they prove we don't deserve God's love. But God. Because he is steadfast and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love, loves them anyway. And he draws them close, and they are the recipients of his promise. And all of those who would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive the promise of the gospel, which is everlasting life and forgiveness in him, are those who are now positioned in the heart of God. Not just as those who God kind of tolerates. Not even as those who who God likes and enjoys. But we are drawn all the way in to be called sons and daughters of God. Not servants and slaves, but sons. Because of what God has done on our behalf in His Son, Jesus Christ. See, the promise of Obadiah is that no matter how dark the days may get, God will make all things right in his time and in his way. And there is no greater down payment on that promise than the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father and who has all authority up there and down here and promises that one day he will return And he will finally eradicate evil across the universe. And he will restore the kingdom of God. And he will reign forever and forever. And until that time comes, God is patient with you and with me and with the world as he continually invites us, don't be like Edom. Don't gloat over the destruction and the discipline of my people. Don't gloat over the destruction of those that are around you. Don't point your finger and scold at the watching world and the evil world out there. Instead, open your heart to me. Learn the lesson of the Edomites and the nations and instead turn to Christ. Don't be proud of yourself and trust in yourself, but trust in God and receive His love. And in receiving His love, love those that are around you. Every single one of them, warts and all. And trust God to do what is right. Because God is patient. God is kind. God is merciful. And we should be too. Where is your trust? Where is your faith? When your life doesn't seem fair, do you lash out at God? Or do you surrender to Him and trust that He will make all things new? When you see those that are around you that you consider evil prospering, do you hate them? Or do you turn them over to the Lord 
Do you trust in God? Are you kind to others? Do you believe in his promise? If not, I invite you to today. To give your life, to give this church, to give the future, to give our nation, to give your family, to give it all to God who promises to make all things new.